Okay. So we, and we're not going to sing it today because I was telling mom this morning as I was trying to play some Christmas songs tonight. No, no, it was not. I tried to learn them last year. didn't get that done. And then I thought, I'll just pull them out a year later, not having practiced them at all. And it'll be better. It was not. So I just put them away. But Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Uh, it was written by Charles Wesley. It was adapted by George Whitfield. And it's really a master class on the topic of uh, the incarnation, which is what we're going to talk about this morning. Um, it very succinctly and melodically gives the account of the incarnation of Jesus. And I want to just read a couple of verses, probably the first couple that we're familiar with. Hark, the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Joyful all ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies, with angelic hosts proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. It goes on and, and it talks about, in the second verse, uh, the offspring of the virgin's womb, veiled in flesh the Godhead, see, hail the incarnate deity, please with us in flesh to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. And that's really, as I said, it's, it's a master class. It's a real explanation. And, and there's several verses that we don't regularly sing at Christmas time that I was very unfamiliar with, but it goes on and it describes this interaction that we have and what the incarnation is and the purpose for which Jesus would take on flesh. So let's talk about it for just a moment. And I want to just begin with an introduction to theology. Theology being, uh, theology proper being the study of who God is. And so if we look at the introduction of theology, let's look at who God is for just, just a few moments. Because this is who took on flesh. This is who was incarnate and dwelt among us. So uh, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, uh, we find, first of all, that, that God is presupposed to exist. So the Bible doesn't explain where he came from. Uh, or, well, it does explain where he came from. That he was self-existent. That he was uncreated. That he always has been. That he always will be. That he is unchanging. But it is presupposed, it is assumed that he exists. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There is no need or, or reason to explain uh, where, where anything would originate other than his creation, because that's where it does begin. Turn with me to Isaiah for just a moment, to Isaiah 45, because we find uh, not only that it is presupposed, God's existence is presupposed and understood in, in the Bible from that from that perspective, we also find that he is the only God. There is no other God that exists beside him. In Isaiah 45, verse 6, uh, I'm going to begin in verse 5. It says, I am the Lord, and there is none else. There is no God beside me. I girded thee, though thou hast not known me, that thou may know from the rising of the sun and from the, re from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is none else. There is no other God beside him. He is the only God that exists. Uh, a few verses back in Isaiah 44, verse 8. He says, Fear ye not, neither be afraid. Have not I told thee that from that time, and have declared it, you are even my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? Yea, there is no God. I know not any. So the, the 
self-existent God who's spoken everything into existence, who we understand uh, one of his attributes is omniscience or, or, or knowing everything, tells us, I don't know of any other gods. I know everything that exists. I created it. I know everything that there is to know, and there are no other gods. So when we talk about the God that created everything, when we talk about uh, who he is, it can only be the God of the Bible. And he tells us that. And if we look at just a few of his characteristics, we know that he's omniscient, he's all-powerful, that he uh, that he's merciful, that he's just, that he's loving, that he's all of these things all in one and perfectly balanced, no characteristic being uh, subject to any other characteristic, but equally all of them all at once. And he's also holy, which means that he is perfect in everything that he does that he is blameless, that he is without any fault, that he is unblemished in regard to moral purity. There is no mistake that God has made. There is nothing that he has done that is uh, that, that bears any reproach that could be criticized. He's perfect, and everything that he's done is perfect. Now, when it comes to an understanding of who God is, there is an ambivalence. And that, that word ambivalence, it's a good word. And it just means that there is this mixed feeling that here we we stand before a perfect god who exists who is uh the bible tells us is going to judge the world because of sin all all of those things being true yet he is perfect and without any reproach without any uh room for criticism and we stand before him knowing because god has created us with an understanding of who we are and where we stand before him we have a conscience that he has given us that helps us to understand that we're not perfect. That helps us understand that the standard that God established is, in fact, perfection. A righteousness, a holiness that is equal to his. It is blameless, faultless, and unblemished in regard to moral purity. We all fall short. We know that. So there's this ambivalence, this mixed feeling that here is this creator God who is perfect and righteous and all of those things. And there's this desire that God has put within us to be in relationship with him, but there's this apprehension to come to him because we understand where we are. In Psalm 42, verse 1, lest we think that we are somehow unique in feeling that way, Psalm 42, verse 1, David, uh, the, the psalmist writes, My soul thirsts for God, for the living God, when shall I come and appear before God? So there's this longing and this desire, this purpose for which God has created us. Now, this ambivalence is exhibited by the nation of Israel. If you'll turn to me to Exodus chapter 20, you remember that in Exodus chapter 20, uh, the nation of Israel has come out of Egypt. They've been delivered miraculously by God. They've been led by a pillar of fire by day and a pillar of cloud smoke. By, by night, switch that. It's the other way around. <laughs> and God brings them to Mount Sinai. And he tells them through Moses, while you're here, we're going to institute a covenant. And this is going to be the conditions. I'm going to give you these 10 commandments. And if you'll do these, ten, these things, then I'll be your God and you'll be my people. And all God was really doing in the Ten Commandments, if I can oversimplify it for sake of understanding, is just codifying, just writing down 
what was already true. It was already wrong to have other gods. It was already sinful and wrong to murder and all, the, all of those things. Here's God just writing it down for the, for the first time in a recording, giving us some standard by which we can measure ourselves and realize that, hey, we don't measure up. And as we've been studying through our evangelism, we find that the law is one of those instruments, one of those tools that God has given to help us realize that very thing. It's our schoolmaster we read in Galatians, our teacher to instruct us. But here's the nation of Israel, God's people, his chosen people that he has just delivered miraculously with all of these signs and wonders from Egypt, led them, delivered them from Pharaoh and his armies in the Red Sea after, after having parted it, and they walked through it on dry land, by the way. And here they are with this understanding of who God is to whatever degree. And as God comes down on top of Mount Sinai and they see the thunderings and they see the cloud surrounding the top of the mountain and all of those things, there is some ambivalence, some mixed feelings about everything that's taking place. Look with me in verses 18 through 21 in Exodus chapter 20. And all the people saw the thunderings and the lightnings and the noise of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they removed and stood afar off. I mean, you can imagine, you see all those things happening on a mountain, and you know because God has told you that that's him up there. And they're, they're like, we're going to get out of here. They remove themselves afar off, as it says in the King James. You know, if we put it in a more modern vernacular, they split. We're, I'm, I'm gone. I'm out. And what they said to Moses in verse 19, Speak thou with us, and we will hear. But let not God speak with us, lest we die. Moses, we need you to be our, our mediary between God and us, because we're terrified. We realize his holiness. We realize his righteousness. We realize our sinfulness. And, and if we go and we talk to him, we're going to die. And so Moses says, okay. The people in verse 21, uh, excuse me, verse 20. And Moses said unto the people, fear not. For God has come to prove you, and that his fear may be before your faces, that you sin not. And the people stood afar off, and Moses drew near into the thick darkness where God was. And so God, Moses said, listen, it's, it's fine. You understand who God is. I'll be your, your go-between. And he enters in, and the people remove themselves, and he is that go-between. This representative, in many respects, of who Jesus Christ is, the mediator between God and between man, illustrated in Moses. Now, in Isaiah, we find that uh, as, he, as Isaiah is taken into heaven, as he has this vision, uh, he experiences the same ambivalence, the same uh, mixed feelings about encountering the living God in his glory. In Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 5, in the year... Uh, in the year that King Uzziah died, I also, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. So here's Isaiah having this vision of God, who, who is the creator, who is perfectly righteous, who is all of the things that he is, and Isaiah sees him in his glory. There he is sitting on his throne, and his train, his, his garments, his glory, as it were, fills the entire temple. And Isaiah sees in verse 2, above it stood the seraphims, or these angelic beings. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, 
and with two he did fly. I mean, just a, a, a an amazing description of what angels look like. You know, we tend to put them into these categories, and they got a couple wings, but they look like people. And here is a, a description of an angel, and all we know is that it has six wings. And it's nothing like we would imagine, but there they are. And their purpose, the reason that they are there is to proclaim the glory of God. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And as we've been studying through evangelism, we find that that's the purpose for which God created mankind. It's the purpose for which we would evangelize and preach the gospel to people for his glory, to make him known, so that people may come unto him and hear the seraphim fulfilling that very same purpose to honor and to glorify their creator who's made everything, who's spoken into existence, who is holy, holy, holy. And the post of the door moved and the voice of him that cried and the house was filled with smoke. And Isaiah is witnessing all of this, this created man who is created in sin, just like we read in scripture, just like any other person who has ever lived on the earth, accepting Jesus Christ. And he realizes what position he is in, the relationship both, uh, both metaphorically and literally that he is in to this holy God. And he says in verse 5, Woe is me, for I am undone. I am overwhelmed. I don't know what to do. I'm, I am fearful, just like Israel, the nation of Israel was, because of the proximity, because of my relationship to God, because I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And one of the seraphim comes and they grab a coal from off the fire where the incense is being burned and they touch it to Isaiah's lips to purify them. And here he is with this mixed feelings about this holy, righteous God and his relationship to him. And when I say mixed feelings, don't misunderstand. It is no mixed feelings about who God is. It's always the, the ambivalence comes as a result of realizing where we are. In relationship to a holy God, our desperate need. And so here we have this very brief introduction to theology, to who God is, his holiness, his his, some of his characteristics, all of those things that he has revealed of himself. And I realize it's very basic, but we need to realize that he is the creator, that he is all-powerful, that he is all-knowing, that he is everything that we describe God to be and understand him to be. And then we talk about the incarnation, the putting on of flesh. Incarnation is another good word, and this is where we're going to talk about chili for just a minute. Because you can buy chili without meat, right? Or you can buy chili with meat, and it's chili con carne, right? That's what it means. Carne is uh, meat in Spanish, or flesh. And interestingly enough, it derives from the same Latin word that incarnation derives from. If you, if you say it, incarnation, you can almost hear carne in the middle of it. So to be somewhat irreverent, the incarnation is God with meat. God con carne. He put on flesh. He took everything that he was, his 
omniscience, his all-powerfulness, his holiness, his righteousness, his love, his mercy, his justice, everything that he is, and he put it into one package and covered it with the same flesh that we're covered with. That was him putting on flesh. God concarnate with flesh. Incarnation, That literally that's what incarnation means. Let's look at that for just a moment. In John chapter 1, verse 14, in the beginning of John chapter 1, we have this introduction to who God is. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, so on and so forth. And we have this description. He was uncreated, all of those things. Then we jump down to verse 14, and it says, And the Word, that, that Word that was God, that is God, that created everything, and the Word was made flesh. He was made carnate. He, was, he took it on and he put it on as a suit, so to speak. And he dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. When we talk about the incarnation, we talk about the birth of Jesus Christ, which is what we're doing at Christmas. We're celebrating him putting on flesh. And we realize that he is, in fact, the Son of God. We realize that we serve a triune God who exists in three distinct personages, but is all one God. And uh, so on and so forth in that Trinitarian doctrine. But we have to remember that Jesus was fully God, that that word that existed, that took on flesh, was everything that God has revealed himself to be from Genesis all the way through Revelation. In a single package, in a single instance. In 1 Timothy 3:16. If you'll turn there, 1 Timothy, Timothy 3.16. Paul says, without any controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Now, he's admitting that there is no, no that it's incomprehensible. That the great is the mystery of, and when we read godliness there, it's sort of an unfortunate translation. Because what it, the word means is, is religion. In other words, Christianity as a whole, it's, it's a mystery, it's incomprehensible that God himself, the creator of everything, would leave his glory and majesty behind, that he would veil it and exist amongst those that he had literally come to save. That he would abandon all the benefit of everything that he existed with. with the seraphim that fly around crying, holy, 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 with his, his majesty and glory filling the entire temple in that heavenly scene, that he would leave that behind, that he would take on flesh, that, that in the taking on of flesh, he would suffer everything that we would suffer. As we see Jesus, as he mourns, as he grieves over the loss of his friend Nicodemus, his death, even knowing that he could raise him from the dead, and that he was going to raise him from the dead, there was grief, there was loss. As Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of Satan himself, yet didn't succumb to it and responded in, with the Word of God in those temptations. What we find is this description and Paul acknowledging that great is the mystery of godliness, of the Christian religion, that our God would leave everything. And it's the distinction that we have amongst all religions that have ever existed and will ever exist probably. And that every other religion adds up to what do I bring to the table? What am I doing to earn favor with these gods that are over here? 
Yet here in Christianity, and it, it, it's mind-boggling that God, who is the creator, who is just, is also merciful and would do everything necessary, would even take on flesh so that he might reveal Christ. As he goes on, he says, God is manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. That here it is that God was manifest in the flesh, that he walked among us, that he took on all of the infirmity that we exist with. It's an interesting thing, and I, I mentioned it last week, to think about God, uh, excuse me, think about Jesus Christ and, and those period of years between when he was a young boy, uh, lost there in Jerusalem, and when he entered his public ministry 30 years later. And what happened in that time? Because you know that there were bumps and scrapes and bruises and all the things that boys endure, that there was a process of learning and taking up the trade and apprenticing and whatever he was doing. There was a growth process, yet here he was, fully God in the flesh, manifest here among us. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, we read that, for in him, in Jesus Christ specifically, all the fullness of the Godhead dwelt bodily. That that's where it was. That there wasn't something in him or something less in him than existed. That he was the representation, that he existed as all of God at all of for all of time in this one person. That God himself took on flesh. And this is exactly what we find proclaimed by the angels in Matthew chapter 1, as Mary has received the information that she's going to uh, be overshadowed by the Holy Spirit, and she's going to become pregnant with the Messiah, who's been foretold and prophesied all the way from Genesis 3.15, this Redeemer, the Son of the Woman, who is going to overcome the serpent. And looking forward and seeing the promise to Israel that through their lineage, this Messiah would come, and even more specifically within that lineage, that it would be through the lineage of David, King David. And we find as we study in uh, Matthew and as we study in Luke, the, the genealogies of both Mary and Joseph, that Jesus Christ was the legitimate heir to the throne of David, that both of his parents were heirs, and so he would be the only one that could sit on that throne, that all of these prophecies were fulfilled and brought to be by God's providence, his interaction and direction of his own creation. So Mary has received this information, and, and as Joseph has had his dream as well, this confirmation that, hey, go ahead and marry her. Even though there's scandal associated with everything that's going on with Mary, marry her. Don't be afraid. You're going to call his name Jesus. And, and for you and I, that, that name is it has lost some significance. But what it means is that it, it means that God saves. That's literally what the name Jesus means. God saves. So here is God who is taken on flesh, coming down into his world with a specific intent and purpose. And we're going to get to that purpose in just a moment. And as we get to the proclamation of the angels, as Mary and Joseph have traveled to Bethlehem for this census that has been called by Caesar, and Jesus is delivered and laid in the manger. And while all of that is taking place, these shepherds who were out there tending their sheep out in the 
the space between towns, the angels show up and they make a proclamation in verse 23. <clears throat> Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Sorry, that's not the angel's proclamation. That's <laughs> that's at the end of Joseph's, Joseph's interaction and Mary, Mary's interaction with the angel. But so I apologize for leading you astray. I've corrected myself. So, but here it is: a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel. This is quoting from Isaiah, actually Isaiah chapter seven, verse fourteen. And in Isaiah's gospel, in Isaiah's gospel, in Isaiah, it doesn't tell us what Emmanuel means. We have to look it up. But here it tells us very clearly, being interpreted, what does Emmanuel mean? God with us. That here is God with us, that he has taken on flesh, that this is his incarnation. God could have chosen to come down and put himself into flesh in any way that he chose. He could have done it, and he could have clothed himself as king of kings and lord of lords and shown up and been a, a, a ruling conqueror, as it were. He could have come in any way, but what he chose to do is to humble himself to the very point where he's going to enter the world like every other person as an infant. That he would be a king for all men, for all people. That he would be a savior. That as he would grow and mature and come through life, that he would be a always tempted like we are yet without sin as we read in the book of Hebrews. Why? So that we have a high priest that is familiar, that he understands the struggles that we have, where we, where we stand, what we go through. As if he didn't already understand being the omniscient God, the all-knowing God. But there he is. If you'll turn with me to Luke chapter 2, we are going to look at the angel's proclamation this morning. Luke chapter 2, because we have God who exists, who is all of the things that he is, as he's described himself in Scripture, who takes on flesh, that is incarnate, that he is God concarnate, with flesh, covered in it. Let's put it on. It doesn't change who he is. It doesn't uh, lower him or anything like that. There is some restraint on his behalf, but nonetheless, it is the fullness of the Godhead dwelling in a physical body. And as the angels proclaim to those uh, shepherds at the birth of Jesus Christ in verses 13, 14 of Luke chapter 2, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. We look at what the purpose was for Jesus' coming, for his taking on a flesh. And we find it first proclaimed at his birth with these angels. That there's this proclamation and this promise. It isn't the first place we read it in Scripture, but it's the first point, first time after his birth that we find it. And what do they proclaim? Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. That there is a need, there is, and as we've talked about the full context of the gospel in regard to evangelism, this helps us understand what is being said here. That God is proclaiming peace between man and himself. 
where we understand that the Bible tells us that we are at enmity. In other words, we are enemies of God, that we are separated by our sin. And there is this uh, thing that we need to be saved from, the consequence of sin, which is death. And here is God proclaiming, and not only proclaiming it, but manifesting it, as we read in 1 Timothy 3.16, in Jesus Christ. God who saves. God with us. God in the flesh who is here proclaiming peace and goodwill toward men, that he would extend toward them not his justice or his wrath, but he would extend toward them his goodwill and his mercy. In Philippians chapter 2, Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, And it's speaking of Jesus, let this mind be in you, verse 5, which is also in Christ Jesus. Who being in the form of God, and to be in the form of God is to be, to be God. That's what it's saying. That here he is, he is fully God. Thought it not robbery to be equal with God. If there's only one God and there's no other, uh, which we looked at earlier, that's why it's important for us to have a basic understanding of who God is. For, for anyone to say that he is equal with God is to say that I am God. And that's exactly as Jesus would proclaim that I and the Father are one, those kinds of statements. And we saw those who heard that take up stones to stone him for blasphemy because he was effectively, and they understood exactly what he was saying, that I am God, that I am God in flesh, that I am your very creator, the one who has delivered you from Egypt and bondage and brought you and given you the Ten Commandments and covenanted with my people, and I took on flesh to manifest to you, to show you my goodwill to proclaim peace between us. So here he is. Who, who Jesus didn't think it robbery to be equal with God because he was in fact God. But he made himself of no reputation, that he would leave everything that, that he had in heaven, that we'd make himself of no reputation. As I said, he could have come in any form that he chose, but he come, came as an infant, born and laid in a manger. Not only that, but he was from a poor family, in a poor region, in a disdained area of Israel. Nazareth was not a glamorous place. And in fact, people from Nazareth were, from Galilee even, but from Nazareth in particular, were viewed as, they were the rednecks and the hillbillies. Nobody wanted to be around them. They avoided them. Uh, you, you remember that when Peter would deny Jesus Christ, and he, you know he was recognized as being a Galilean, and he, he, they talk about, you know, the Galileans are like dogs. They're, they're just less than human. They were not appreciated as far as people in, in Israel. But that's where he chose to, be, to, to, to enter the world. The lowest of lows. On the wrong side of the tracks, as it were. He made himself of no reputation. And he took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. In other words, he took on flesh. It was just like you and I. If we could take a time machine and go back and see Jesus walking down the road with his disciples, there would be no way that we could identify him amongst those men that he walked with. He would look like just everyone else. He didn't walk around with, you know, kind of glowing in white clothes and he didn't get dirty. No, he looked like everybody else. He was of no reputation. What distinguished him was everything that he did, what he said, what he talked, the authority with which he spoke. This, the offering of himself that he gave, making himself a servant, not coming to be served. 
And being found in a fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. The purpose and the reason for which Jesus Christ took on flesh was simply to be the offering that we needed as a result of our sinfulness. If there's going to be a resolution to the enmity, the discord, the separation between God and his, his created people, mankind, there has to be a sacrifice. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 3 that God, because he punished sin in Jesus Christ, could remain just. Sin was punished. But it could also be the justifier because sin was punished. Those who would believe in Christ could be justified or declared to be sinless. This is how God was declaring peace amongst, amongst people. Uh, Jesus said in John 3.17, I didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but the world through me might be saved. He came to be the offering that was needed. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power when he had himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. What did Jesus do? He purged our sins. He completely paid for them. He covered all of it. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that he was made sin. In other words, when God got down and he saw Jesus hanging on the cross, he saw you and I, all the sin that we had done, the sin that everyone that has ever existed and ever will exist has committed and poured out on them the wrath, the punishment, the consequence for that sin. Jesus was made sin and suffered the, the, all of the, the, the righteous and just wrath of God for sin on our behalf. And that verse in 2 Corinthians goes on. It says, He was made sin so that we could be made His righteousness. You remember that God established that standard, and the standard was a righteousness or a holiness equal to His well, when he was made sin, and by faith we enter into that relationship with Christ, we are given his righteousness. All of a sudden, our righteousness is equal to his. It is his righteousness imputed, counted to us. God declares us we are justified, and that's what Jesus came to do. He purged us of sin, and we receive that gift that is offered to us by faith in Jesus Christ. This is what was happening. This is why Chile with meat is better than chili with no meat. Because we can't do it on our own. We need somebody to stand in the gap. And that person, the man, Christ Jesus, was the only mediator between God and man. It couldn't be Moses, even though he, he acted in that form. He died, and, he, and, and not only that, he was not without sin. He didn't even get to go into the promised land because he had sin in his life. Yet here is Jesus, who is the perfect, righteous, spotless Lamb of God, who would lay down his life and purge us of sin. He is the gift of God. James would tell us in James chapter 1, verse 7, uh, and I almost have it memorized, but not quite, so give me just a second. Okay, it's not James 1, 7. It's some other reference. Oh, 117, James 1, 17. Every good gift... And every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness nor shadow of turn. Every good thing that we received is something that God has done. And here is Jesus Christ saying, I am the best thing. That the salvation that is offered to you and I 
the, the, the purging of our sin was accomplished in his finished work. There's nothing for us to add or, or bring to it. He has done it. And it says that there's no shadow of turning. It isn't as if God is giving the gift and then somehow removing it from us. There's no variableness. We can trust. We have the assurance that when we receive it, it's ours. In Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. That's what we've earned as a result of our sin. That is the consequence that God told Adam and Eve. What happened from the very beginning? Sin equals death. But it goes on, it says the gift of God, what he has provided in Jesus Christ, the reason for which he would become incarnate, that he would put on flesh, is, is that the gift of God is eternal life. That there would be this exchange that happened, that word exchange, we call it in theological terms, it's the atonement. That covering of our sin, that here is Jesus made sin so that we could become his righteousness. And he gave himself, which is really the only option, because there's no person that has ever lived that is righteous. It had to be God. There's no other perfect being in existence anywhere. It had to be him. And he was willing to do it. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 21 through 22, tell you and bring them near let them take counsel together who hath declared this from ancient time. Who has told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? And there is no God else beside me, a just God and a Savior. There is none beside me. And look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. There is no other place. In Acts chapter 4, verse 12, there's none other name under heaven and earth whereby man must be saved. And what does that name mean? God saves. But here is God in Isaiah telling us that this is, look unto me and be saved. Nowhere else. It had to be him. He was that holy offering in John 1, 29, as John the Baptist sees Jesus coming. He tells them, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. That here he is. He's going to be the one, and, and that Lamb of God is a reference to all of these sacrifices that God gave the nation of Israel. All of them being representative, looking forward to what Jesus was going to finish all an illustration of what he perfectly accomplished. And while they were temporary coverings, they would simply cover it for a period of time, just like when God, uh, after Adam and Eve had sinned, and, and he came into the garden, and he had to kill the animals and make them the covering, the coats of skin, as, the, as it says in the Bible. It was temporary. It didn't last forever. And the effect of sin was still there. They still died. Yet here in all of that looking forward to it, here is Jesus Christ, that perfect sacrifice. The Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And as we read in Hebrews, it purges. In other words, it completely eradicates. It removes it whole. Nothing left. He was that holy offering. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. <clears throat> Hebrews 2, verse 9. But we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. So here we have this confirmation of everything that we talked about, Jesus being incarnate, all of those things. And that's a reference even back to the Psalms, who, who is man that thou art mindful of him, you've made him a little lower than the angels. And there's a quotation there. We see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, that's the purpose, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. This is why he came. 
This is the purpose for which Jesus came. And in John, 1 John chapter 3, we're, we're almost done here this morning. 1 John 3, verse 5. And know you that he was manifested, that he was shown, that he took on flesh, that he was incarnate to take away our sins. That was the purpose. That was why Jesus came. When we celebrate Christmas, I know we're talking about Jesus' birth and all those things, but I sometimes we miss the significance of, of what such a, a simple, seemingly ordinary, though miraculous and extraordinary in its own right, thing has that this is the reason why, this is the very message that there is a salvation, a, a deliverance from sin and death. And that God has provided that completely and wholly in Jesus Christ. I just want to close this morning reading one of those unfamiliar verses from Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Like I said, it's a masterclass. It's a, it's a seminary level condensing of the, the doctrine of the incarnation. I was just, I mean, you, you sing it, but then I went and read it. And I was like, oh, wow, these, these guys knew what they were talking about. <laughs> but I just want to close this morning by reading one of the last verses. And there's so much biblical reference and so much left on the table because there's, it's just jam-packed with, with information. It says, Adam's likeness, Lord efface. And the word efface means erase, get rid of. Right? That here we are, we are born in the image of Adam, in desperate need, separated from God, depraved, unable to redeem ourselves. Adam's likeness, remove it from us, erase it, stamp thine image in its place. Give me your righteousness. Remember that we are created in God's image. All the way in the beginning, let us make man in our own image. Second, Adam from above, reinstate us in thy love. That description of that reconciliation. When we have been given the ministry of reconciliation. Let us thee, though lost, regain. Thee, the life, the inner man. O to all thyself impart, formed in each believing heart. This is what Jesus came to do. This is why he was incarnate. This is why he took on flesh and was willing to condescend to the likeness of man. To leave his glory that he might redeem you and me. And like Paul said, it is, it is, it is a mystery. It is mind-boggling to consider that our Creator would do that for us. And we set aside one day a year to celebrate, and it seems some understanding that that's so little. And perhaps as, as it's cliche to say, right, that we should have Christmas at our heart every day. And, and in regard to that, yes, we should. We should have some recognition of what God has done. That we should mimic what Christ has done, in, not in delivering anyone or earning our salvation, but, but in his reaching out to those, that ministry of reconciliation, we would engage in that preaching of the very good news of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you this morning for the opportunity to be here. Lord, I praise you that while we could do nothing, that we were uh, bound and destined for hell as a result of the sin that we have committed, Lord, and being conceived in sin and being born that way, Lord, we understand that you did everything that was necessary. You took on flesh to 
that you humbled yourself, that you, that you came in the form of a servant, not that to condemn the world, though you were perfect and right, Lord, but that the world through you might be saved. And here we celebrate your birth, your incarnation, your taking on a flesh, Lord, tomorrow. And we, we look forward to that. We look forward to remembering. We look forward to the, the celebrations and the things that we have done, Lord, as a result of mimicking what you have done, that we give gifts, Lord, knowing that you were the gift given to us. And I pray, Lord, that we would, in everything we do, be purposeful toward that end, that we would make you known, that just as Jesus glorified you in all that he did, Lord, may by your grace, may we glorify you. We give thanks, Lord. We praise you, Lord, and we celebrate in honor of you and all that you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.